listening to you. All right, Deuteronomy. Just kidding. Book of Numbers. The end of second service, when I was introducing the evening service, did I say to read Leviticus chapter 6? No, I said Numbers. Oh, my. Okay. Man, what a streak I've been on here last couple of weeks. A little bit scary for me. Yeah. Larry, don't enjoy that too much. You're about my age, too. This, uh, pick things up in context, and Numbers chapter 6 is where we are this evening. Uh, remember last week as we introduced chapter 5 and 6, they're kind of uh, one thing there. Uh, kind of get off of the lists of the numbers and different things that the book of Numbers is known for, and God gives them, Moses and the children of Israel, a series of commands uh, related to a, a theme that runs through all of the issues that he addressed, and that is uh, the theme of holiness. And so last week we saw his concern for the physical purity of the camp as he ordered the, those that uh, had the potential of infectious diseases or contact with dead bodies that might have died of something that would then bring a plague among the people. They were to be separated. So there's a physical purity, then a spiritual purity, those that were sinning against other people. And uh, they were required not only to confess their sin when they kind of got busted on things or, or they realized it themselves, but they also had to make restitution uh, for any kind of damage that their sin had caused to somebody else. Again, it's a, it's a big group of people that God is trying to, to hold together, and He knows that uh, there, there can be this so much sin that goes on one person against another. If it's not resolved, it has a potential of just splintering this uh, Jewish people and Jewish nation into a thousand different pieces and then he wouldn't be able to accomplish his his will and then he spoke about the importance of sexual purity and the protection of marriages against adultery and also uh, against the uh, a false divorces of a jealous husband against uh, a wife who had not committed adultery but the husband is suspecting uh, him, uh, her of that. How many of you uh, women after we got done with that uh, last week thought to yourself in order for it to be fair that uh, the wife at the end of that whole ceremony ought to be able to be handed a two by four and beat the guy like a pinata for about uh, 30 minutes. It does seem like he gets off kind of light, and I, I won't minimize that or try to explain that away, but you only have to do that once or twice, and your, your reputation in a, in a family and a, in a group of people like that would, would have probably been pretty seriously damaged if you're uh, treating someone in that way. It was not the norm for treating people, and certainly for treating your wife. And so... He gave the instructions related to that. And now, as he continues this theme of holiness, he gives the law of the Nazarite, chapter 6. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman, so both were able to take a Nazarite vow, consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself 
to the Lord. And he's going to give what needs to happen related to that. Let's talk about what a Nazarite vow was a little bit. The word Nazarite comes from a root word that is Nazar, and it means to dedicate. And so it was a voluntary vow. This was not required of anyone. It was a voluntary vow on the part of a man or a woman uh, that they would make to dedicate their life or devote their life to God for some um, self-defined period of time. It could be a week, it could be number of days or weeks or months or years. It could be three years, it could be a lifetime. There were, are some lifetime Nazarites in the, recorded in the scriptures we'll see in just a moment. But where a person would look and say, I want to dedicate my life to the Lord in an extraordinary way. I want to dedicate it to Him for His purposes in an extraordinary way. And it was a volunteer uh, offering that they were making. Now remember that a Nazarite, in making this dedication of their life, this extraordinary dedication of their life to God, that they are doing that in a context of obedience. It wasn't like the, all the rest of the children of Israel got to disobey and be carnal and lukewarm and all these other things. And then a Nazarite said, all right, I'm going to live in obedience to God's Word. And as a result of that, amongst the spiritual you know, weakness of these people, I'll live head and shoulders above them. We're talking about obedience to God's Word being the norm. That's the standard. And here is somebody who comes along and says, I want to even go beyond that, what the, the law and God's Word uh, demanded of an individual Jew. I want to live in even greater intimacy uh, with the Lord. And so there was that... Uh, uh, that was the kind of commitment that was made. Again, both men and women could uh, make this vow. So it's a very, very uh, common vow, widespread in, in Jewish history, people uh, taking Nazarite vows. A woman would have to, uh, in, in the light of the law, she would need the permission of her husband to take this kind of vow. Uh, and if she was unmarried, the permission of, of her father. Now what this uh, Nazarite uh, thing allowed for is here you got uh, you know Joe Bacicalupi and he's from the tribe of Zebulun and he looks over and, and the tribe of Levi uh, or, or Aaron and the descendants of Aaron are they're the priests they get to do all that stuff related to the temple and all of the offerings and the things and they get to do stuff uh, with God that nobody else gets to do and then the Levites, they were one of the twelve tribes. They were separated to God to help uh, the, uh, the priests in their spiritual kind of work for the nation. But here's a guy from the tribe of Naphtali or Zebulon and looks and says, well, wait a second. Uh, just because I didn't get born into that lineage or I didn't get born into that tribe, does that mean that I can't have an intimacy with God and a relationship with God that is great is what they have? Um, am, I, am I going to be a second-class citizen in all of this? And the Lord comes in and He opens this up to anyone to take a Nazarite vow to dedicate themselves to the Lord. Now the interesting thing about this is it's not talking about calling. The person who would take the Nazarite vow, they could not be a priest Priests had their own calling. This guy had his calling. It's the way God works. He couldn't be a Levite. The Levites were called to do one thing. This, he was, he's called to do something different. So it's not about calling. It's about intimacy with God. So here's a person that can look, and God is saying basically to the nation, no matter what I've called you to do for me, 
that, that calling on your life will never restrict your intimacy with me. You can have as close a relationship that you want to have with me, whether you're a priest, whether you're a Levite, or whether you're from the tribe of Zebulun. Calling and gifting and intimacy with God, two entirely different things. You could be a priest and be as carnal as can be. A priest and not have any concern for God at all. They'll have them in their, their history. And so here was a thing where a person, a person can have, because this is a voluntary uh, uh, dedication that a person is, is making, it, this was a, 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 a commitment to God that was even deeper than, than what the priests had made. That was mandatory for them as a descendant of, of Aaron. And, and so God was basically saying, listen, callings are different in the body of Christ, but there is no limit on the intimacy a personal relationship you can have with me in that calling. So the person with a gift of mercy and helps, those are overlooked gifts in the body of Christ most often. But a person with that gifting and calling in the body of Christ can have an even deeper personal relationship with God than a pastor, an evangelist, a prophet. They shouldn't. Everybody should have that deep relationship. But there's no limit upon them. James, James speaks about it, and he puts it in this way. In his epistle, he said, draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. And the communication of that is, is that every single one of us in the body of Christ, we have the relationship with God, the intimacy of relationship with God that we want. You and I sit here tonight with the relationship we want. Say if it's a carnal relationship or a long-distance relationship uh, or a very close personal relationship, we have the relationship we have because that's what we want with God. God has put it in our court for us to have the kind of relationship that we want to have with Him. And He will meet us in whatever it is that we want to have with Him. And it's a beautiful thing. So it's the same Old Testament beauty to it, but it carries over into the New Testament uh, too. And I think it's, it's good for us. I, the Bible says those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. I think it's very, very important for us as individual Christians. God has a call on your life individually that is different from the Christian who lives down the street from you or the Christian that sits eight seats over from you every Sunday or the Christian that's four offices down from you where you work. And it's important that we don't look at somebody else and say, well, you know, as we look at other Christians, I'm doing pretty good. Other Christians are not the standard. The Word of God's the standard. The, the, the uh, potential of closeness of relationship with God that's been made available to us because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that's the standard. And I would just exhort my own heart and exhort your heart tonight in, in this vein is don't make anybody else, anything else, the standard for your personal relationship with Him. You make it everything that it can be this side of, of heaven. And the Nazarite vow allowed for that. It's very beautiful. Now, there were some requirements that were uh, necessary related to this uh, Nazarite vow, and he starts to list them here in, in uh, verse 3. He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes 
or raisins. And all the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seed to the skin. Nothing. No grapes, no grape byproduct, nothing that they were to eat uh, of, of that. That was one of the characteristics of, of, an, of a Nazarite. And, and so probably what it spoke of is self-denial in terms of um, luxury or self-denial in terms of kind of the blessings in life. Uh, to, have these, to have a big cluster of grapes, to have raisins, to have uh, wine, to have these kinds of things, this was a great blessing, you know, um, in, in terms of uh, eating and, and partaking and all. So it was kind of a self-denial on the food side of things. And all the days of the vow, verse 5, of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head. So he, he would let his hair grow out and he couldn't even trim it. Just would, would continue to grow until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy and then he shall let the locks of, uh, of the hair of his head grow. And so the second prohibition was against any kind of a haircut or uh, very popular at different times probably in American history. But he was to, to let that his hair grow at, during the time of his vow, whether it was for weeks or months or for years, no trimming it at all. And so here we have kind of an expression of self-denial, uh, specifically in, in the area of personal appearance. Now, men wore longer hair in those days. I can't say longer than, than it's worn today. In our culture, hair is worn by men in every kind of way that it can be worn. Uh, but, but traditionally in the United States. So they would have wore their hair longer, but a Nazarite, by not uh, cutting his hair for an extended period of time, would have been obvious even to a Jew, even in a context of longer hair, because it would have gone untrimmed and it would be, have grown typically much longer than the average person uh, would have worn it. So the hair would have ended up being a uh, visual or an external evidence of this person's, uh, man's devotion to the Lord. Now, um, different Nazarites that are uh, spoken of in the Bible, uh, Samson was a Nazarite from his mother's womb. His mother, remember, the angel spoke to her and said, no drinking of wine, nothing from the grape, uh, anything like that, because the child that you are carrying is going to be a Nazarite from the womb. And so she didn't partake of, of any of that. Um, John the Baptist was uh, probably a Nazarite from the womb when the angel spoke to Zechariah and said, you know, he, should, he shall not drink any wine all the days of, of his life. Paul, it appears, uh, took a Nazarite vow. I think it's in Acts chapter 18, uh, probably, and is a part of his ministry to the Jews. Jesus was not a Nazarite. And sometimes people get confused about that because they, we know he is a Nazarene, but there's a difference between a Nazarite and a Nazarene. A Nazarene is someone who was you know, born or come from the city of Nazareth. So Jesus uh, never was a, a Nazarite or took a Nazarite vow. Now, Samson, he got this whole hair thing all goofed up because he thought the whole thing was about the outward, about the show. 
And uh, so when Delilah's kind of messing with him and trying to find, you know, the source of his strength and everything in order to, you know, really the devil to, to destroy his calling and, and all, he, he thinks that the source of his strength is the length of his hair. But the hair was just a symbol of a, a man's dedication to the Lord in this vow. And Samson had no heart concern about being a Nazarite. He was touching uh, dead bodies contrary to um, you know, what the Word of God said. He's, he was eating things that he should have never eaten and all. But he, he, j- he kept to that whole hair thing. And, uh, and w- what he didn't realize is that the, to have the longer hair apart from the commitment to God that it's supposed to represent, well, you're not going to have that hair for very long. And he didn't. He got the whole thing, thought the form was more important than the substance and found out God doesn't operate that, that way. But they, but they were supposed to keep their, uh, let their hair uh, grow out. And, and growing out, again, in that culture, it would have been a, a, uh, a clear demonstration to the world that, um, that this man is under a Nazarite vow. In other words, God did not want a Nazarite to keep his devotion to God secret. He wanted the whole world to know, this is a guy that's serious about me, this is a gal that's serious about me. And it was evidenced by their diet. It was evidenced by uh, their, their outward uh, uh, appearance. And so it wasn't to be, to be kept a secret at all. And the same thing for us as Jesus speaks to us about our relationship with him. It's not to be kept a secret, but we don't all grow our hair out like a Nazarite. You can if you want, but, but you don't have to. And Jesus spoke about the way that we let the world know that, that uh, we're... We're him and we're his and devoted to him. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in, in heaven. So our relationship with God is demonstrated in our works, which includes our words. I'm really, um, I really don't like a, a thing I'm hearing right now in the body of Christ, especially among you know the kind of more the tripper, uh, uh, hipper and, you know, kind of church movement thing that's happening a little bit. And I don't care about candles, and I don't care about dimming lights, and I don't care about any of that kind of stuff. We had candles that would have alarmed the fire marshal when we were down on 10th and F, and we started Calvary Chapel here. So we understand people can do a lot of different things. But I, I'm concerned in a lot of what I read and what I hear about some of the leaders of, of these churches that are having influence among young people uh, and let's reach the world and let's impact it socially and those things. All that stuff is great. I don't have a problem with that. But that whole idea of, you know, let's let uh, everyone know that we're a Christian and then uh, when necessary use words. I don't like that. Because my personal opinion related to the body of Christ in the United States of America is we're not speaking up enough about the things of the Lord. So I'm all for the whole message of let's live it, let's let people see a difference in, in our life and uh, in the ways that God has intended that to happen. But don't look at it and say, I've got to pick or choose here. And don't look at it and say, in the new covenant, that we are called only to make a difference in this world by our example. Now, our words are nothing without a proper example. Ju- people will just peg us as hypocrites. 
But we need to have a right life that looks like Christ. But then we need to speak up too. I don't know how many of you in this room, but I'm thankful that a lot of people in my life not only lived it, but they spoke it to me. Because sometimes I can't get it by just watching. You've got to deliver the gospel to me sometime. You've got to tell me why you're different sometime. So maybe the most clever of people can pull that thing off in terms of understanding. The rest of us need some words in there also. So uh, I'm feeling a lot better about having gotten that off my chest, by the way. But, but it, uh, sincerely, I just think it, I listen to that and I cringe. I wouldn't make a federal case out of it, though I just have. But I, I cringe at it. Anything that gives people, young people, older people, anyone in the body of Christ, the idea that, listen, you know, don't speak up. I think we need to speak up. And, uh, uh, and that's a part of, of our good works in this, in this world too. Now, in verse 6, he says, All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, a third requirement, he shall not go near a dead body, not to, not to come into contact with death. And he shall not make himself unclean, that is to touch a dead body, even for his father, his mother, let's say they die during the course of, of his period of, of making this vow, or for his brother or his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. So he's restricted from touching dead bodies. So this probably uh, is talking about the fact that um, a self-denial in terms of personal relationship. Even the most important relationships in our life were, were not to be more important than a Nazarite's relationship to God. And this was one of the ways to, um, to demonstrate that. So if his father died or his mother died, he couldn't go in there and, and hug the dead body or anything like that. The Jews uh, always buried the same day and, and continued to do so today in Israel. And he was to, he was to keep his distance uh, related um, to that. And uh, he was to stay. He was not to allow death to move him from his commitment to God. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. Let the spiritually dead uh, bury the physically dead and to, to the body of Christ. Speaking of us as Christians, in other words, you do uh, the things that only a saved person can do. Make that the focus of your life. There's plenty of other people that don't know me that can take care of these other things. And so not to get bogged down on those things in the world, but to stay focused on, on the stuff that only we can do as his children in, in the world. And so he was to all the days of his separation, verse 8, to be separated to the Lord. And if anyone dies very suddenly beside him, so a husband, a wife, or something in, in bed at night, or uh, whatever it might be, dies, you wake up and you realize this person has died and, and I've come into contact uh, with them, uh, or, I don't know, on the bus, or whatever kind of a thing that would happen in church. <laughs> Just poke the person next to you to make sure that everything's okay. Um, so, and, and he defiles his consecrated head now by death. Then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing, and on the seventh day he shall shave it. So once he's been defiled by, defiled by death, he shaved his head, and then on the seventh day he would shave it again. This is kind of a purification process that he would have to go through because he's been uh, rendered unclean. And then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and the priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering 
and make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse and he shall sanctify his head in that same day. Wait, what do you, what do you mean he sinned? That wasn't his fault. He just went to sleep there on the couch and the person died next to him and it was, it was accidental. How can that be a sin? This interesting is, is the two sacrifices that would be offered. The burnt offering was an offering of consecration where the Nazarite would say, and, 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 despite this defilement that's occurred, I freshly dedicate my life to you. The interesting thing is this is a beautiful picture of the, the um, sin, uh, unintentional sin is sin too. So there's the sin that occurs when we do something that's deliberately wrong, and then there is, there is sin that occurs or defilement that happens in our life even when it's unintentional. There's a whole bunch of people in the world today that don't think that they're sinners on the basis of, of the fact that um, they've never done anything un, uh, intentionally wrong to somebody else. But they've done a lot of wrong. It doesn't matter. Sin is, is sin whether it's intentional or unintentional, and it needed an, he needed an offering for that. And he shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering, but the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. So he starts all over and, and uh, is a result of this defilement. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of the, Nazar, uh, of the separation are fulfilled, he is to be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he's made this vow for three years. End of the three years, he's going to end this vow and this consecration. He's brought to the door of, of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall present his offering to the Lord. One male lamb in its first year without blemish is a burnt offering. One ewe lamb in its first year without blemish is a sin offering. One ram without blemish as a peace offering, a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and their grain offering with their drink offerings. That's an amazing uh, list and quite an expensive list of offerings that he would bring. And it speaks of how seriously God viewed the Nazarite vow when it would be made to him. Do you know what the, the equivalent of the Nazarite vow is for us in the New Testament? It's uh, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And uh, so, uh, help me out. <laughs> so, uh, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And so that's what that's what that uh, kind of consecration is. That's what it's talking about. So once and for ours, that when it's talking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when it's talking about giving our lives to God as a living sacrifice, it it doesn't mean that we're it 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 doesn't. Uh, supremely mean that we're to do that every day. It means that there's to be a moment in time in our Christian life where we once and for all settle the issue of Jesus' lordship in our life, where he's not just our Savior, but he's our Lord, and now my life is his to use any old way that he wants. And, uh, and so... Um, a, a, a tremendous you know, offering that is, is made. And these offerings then to come out from under that spoke about how 
uh, highly God esteemed this commitment that a Nazarite would make to him. And then the priest shall bring them these offerings before the Lord, offer his sin offering and his burnt offering, and he shall offer um, the uh, ram as a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord with a basket of unleavened bread. The priest also shall offer his grain offering and its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice for the peace offering. So all his hair that grew during that period of, uh, of, of his uh, vow, since that technically belonged to God, it would be shaved off and then offered to God. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he was, has shaved his consecrated hair. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy to the priest, together with uh, the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering. And then after that, the Nazarite, Nazarite may drink wine. In other words, he may reintroduce himself into normal life of the society around him. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord the offering for his separation. And besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. And then in verse 22, um, Moses, uh, or the Lord moves on and he speaks to Moses here and declares uh, to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons, the high priests and the priests, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is a fascinating, it's, it's called, known as the Aaronic or high priestly blessing in the, in the Old Testament. Here you have, uh, in, at, at this time, the book of Numbers, you, uh, all of the sacrifices that were uh, associated with the tabernacle, at least one time every single day, the priests would come to the tabernacle they would offer offerings to the Lord and then there would be prayer that would be lifted up to God and all the things that would happen in the tabernacle. So there's like church every day. You could come from wherever you were camped in the encampment and you could come over to where the tabernacle was and then be a part of, of that service on a daily basis. At least every morning uh, an offering was offered up to the Lord. On many days during the course of the year, uh, multiple offerings would be offered up during the day. The Lord speaks to Moses, and, and, or rather to Aaron, and he says to Aaron, every single time my people come to that tabernacle to meet with me, before they leave, I want you to pronounce this blessing on them. So this blessing is one that they would have uh, heard if you were you know, walking with God and at the tabernacle all the time. It's one that you would have heard over and over and over and over again. And God says, now when they come to meet with me and they kind of head out the doors and they head out into their regular life of the day, I want this blessing ringing in their ears. 
and uh, the blessing is, is a beautiful one. And it's a reminder to them, number one, that the Lord is a blessing God. Number two, it reminds them of six things. Number one, he says, I want you to remind them every single day, every single day, every time they gather around anything associated with my name, when they leave, this is what I want in their heart. I want them to know that I'm a blessing God. And number two, I want them to know that I'm a keeping God. And number three, I want them to know that I'm a smiling God. That's what it means to have your face shine upon someone. It is where your face is smiling at someone because of, of your attitude of, of great love and, and blessing toward the person. It's, it's how grandparents look at their grandchildren and parents look at their children. Kind of. Most of the time. So... So, the, the, so we have, he said, I want you to remind them that I smile when I look at them. I think about them. I want you to remind them, number four, that I'm a gracious God. I don't deal with them on the basis of, of anything other than grace, unmerited favor. And, and that I am an attentive God. When it talks here about the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, um, it's talking about the fact that um, he, he lifts his head and gives us our, his full attention when we come to him. You ever um, uh, walk into a room where somebody that's in the room uh, that you're walking into is someone that you love and you care about? And they're already preoccupied. Maybe they're reading the paper, or they're involved in some kind of work, or taking care of the bills, or whatever it might kind of thing might be. And when you walk in the room, they drop everything and give you their full attention. How does that make you feel? You should feel really, really good. And that is what God is communicating about himself toward us as his people. When we enter into that throne room of grace to receive the grace and the mercy that we have need of, and people say, oh, he's too busy. What does he care about? You know what I could say and all of that. No, he's not too busy. He's big enough to do that. And in a sense, he drops everything when we walk into the room and we have something to say to him. And then number six, the reminder that he is a peace-giving God. When, when we believe the other five things about him, then we're going to be at peace in our relationship with him. God said, when they leave, that's what I want them to leave with. And, and I think there's a wonderful ministry lesson in this thing. This is one of the passages. I don't want to give away all of the trade secrets there aren't any. But it's one of the passages. It's about a half a dozen passages that I pray through um, before I ever minister the Word among God's people. And this is one of them that I do. And, and my prayer is, and I haven't always been good at it, and, uh, but I'm trying, trying to grow in it, and just to say, Lord, when they leave this place and I've ministered the Word and they head out to their cars to head out into all the different places that they're going, no matter what got said, no matter how exhortive it was or how difficult it might have even been to, to listen to, because some passages are very, very strong that way, I want them to leave with this confidence about you. And I ask the Lord to help me, not only with what to say, but how to say it, and the people will leave in that way. And so this was what um, God called Aaron to, to proclaim upon uh, the people. And, this is, and then you take it times as Christians under the new covenant. I mean, it's off the graph. 
in terms of how God wants this and more to be the confidence that we have. Well, he's given us, what he's actually done is he's given us greater proofs of these six things in our lives uh, through Jesus. And he said, now listen, you speak these things over my people, and then it's, it's amazing here. He says, and so they shall put my name on the children of Israel. He said, you speak this blessing over them, because in doing so, you're speaking my name over them. Now, in the Jewish culture, when we name people in the United States, for the most part, we name them names that we like. We don't necessarily look up the meaning of them or anything like that. As a name is just kind of a tag that you put on someone, but it's got to be one that you like. And uh, sometimes it'll have a family history or a good friend or something like that. But how the Jews named was, and, and viewed names, very, very different from our culture. A name represented the person. That's what it represented. It represented the person, the nature of the person. So when God says, if you, when you pronounce this over my people, you are pronouncing my name over them, he, he is saying, you are reminding them of who and what I am. This is who and what I am to my, my people. So this is my nature. In other words, I want you to reinforce in them all of the time that this is what their God is like and how their God views them and the commitment that he's made to them. And then I think what is maybe the most astonishing part of the, the whole instruction is he says, and I'll bless them. Aaron, you just get up there, and every time you close out a service, I want you to declare this over my people I want them to hear it so often that they've got it memorized, that they can think it backwards and forwards, inside and out, right to left. I want them to know this like they know the back of their hands. And when you pronounce them this over them, then you be confident. I'll do it. I will be this in their lives. In other words, Aaron, sometimes you can look and say, Wow. That's some major sanctified boasting in God. Will he do it? Will he be that to them? Will he be it to them in the coming week? And God says, your job, Aaron, is to remind them of this. And then if you do that, I'll live up to it in their lives. It's a very, very rich, deep, beautiful blessing and part of, of the word of God. Chapter 7. Now, chapter 7 um, is interesting, it, the uh, second longest chapter in all of the Bible, I, I say to you, um, and I, I know that you receive it with great excitement, uh, given uh, the uh, lateness of, of my time here. Um, but you know what the first longest chapter in the Bible is? Psalm 119, yeah. So it's got, it's got 187 million or something like that verses in, in Psalm 119 about the Word of God. So this is a pretty long chapter in here, and the chapter's all about giving. So about 10 o'clock, I'm going to order pizzas in, and uh, we'll get you taken care of and some lattes and, and all. But um, actually, it's a lot of repetition in it, and, but it is beautiful, and let's, we'll, we'll tackle it before we, we leave um, tonight. So he said, Now it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle that he anointed it and he consecrated it and all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils, so he appointed them and consecrated them. So he kind of is doing a little bit of a flashback right here in that these events all happened about a month earlier in terms of, of the chronology uh, here. So 
Moses has anointed and consecrated the tabernacle, all of the furnishings of the Ark of the Covenant, etc., all of the utensils. They'd received God's plans for how to build the tabernacle, build all of the furnishings. They were obedient to all of that. They built it. God was pleased with all of it. He came down on it, Exodus chapter 40. And, uh, and came down on it as a cloud and he inhabited it and filled it with his glory. And so uh, when God did that, kind of uh, uh, consecrating or uh, uh, setting this whole thing aside for himself, saying, yes, I like this, yes, I'm pleased with this, you've been obedient, there's great excitement among God's people at seeing this. And, uh, and among the leaders. And so uh, they looked at this as, wow, we not only got to do this great thing and obey God in building this, but look at how uh, God has, has anointed this. And their hearts were really thankful to God and excited over what it was that he had done. And in, under the, the light of all of that, then verse 2, the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's houses, so one per tribe of Israel, uh, who were the leaders of the tribes, and over those who were numbered, they made an offering. And this offering is completely voluntary. Uh, there's no constraint or anything, free will offering. And they brought their offerings before the Lord. Here's the offerings. Six covered carts and twelve oxen. A cart for every two of the leaders, and for each one uh, of, of the leaders there was an ox that was given, and they presented them before the Lord. And so this was the offering that they, they gave uh, to, to the Lord there. And they're given, as we'll see in a moment, in order to help the Levites with the transportation of the tabernacle from Mount Sinai all the way to the promised land. So the Bible says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that's kind of what they're doing. So they say, well, you know, we're not Levites. We can't be Levites. But look at what the Levites have to carry. All of those coverings over the tabernacle, all of the boards, all of the support structure and everything. We can't do that for them. But maybe we could help them out in some way. And so they, they figured out, well, let's offer some, some uh, oxen and offer some carts to the Lord that then could be given to the Levites to help them uh, in their work. Now notice how the Lord's response to this gift. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, accept these from them. Now those four words are weird to me because here it is. It's given to God and God looks at it and says, go ahead and accept them. Now, we just assume that God's just going to accept anything we give to him any old way we give it to him. But he doesn't have to accept anything. But he looked at the heart in which this was given. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. So when somebody gives something, you know, they dig down, God, I hope you know, and God says, I'm not accepting that. You lost the money, but I'm not accepting that. So it's a big deal for God to accept something. But he looked at their hearts. He looked at their attitude toward him and what he was doing in the world. And he said, uh, Moses, uh, go ahead and accept that on my behalf. See, and I think it reinforces for us. And it's a tone that we try to set around here in a church. It's a privilege to give to God. I never, ever want to be guilty, not my whole Christian life until the Lord either comes back or takes me to be with him but ever want to portray giving is a constrained force guilt ridden kind of thing because the Lord doesn't want it that way it is a privilege to take what he blesses us with and then give it toward his work 
whether it's financial, whether it's time or whatever, whatever it might be. It is an honor to give to him. What if we couldn't give anything materially to the kingdom of God? How, how shallow and pathetic would the area of finances be in our life if none of it could go into eternity? What about our time? If none of our time could go toward the advancement of the kingdom, how shallow would our time be used? It's an honor to be able to be involved with the Lord's work in this way. And, and so it's an interesting way that God responds to this. And so he says uh, to him, accept these from them, and then hear that, and here's the reason word for that, that these things may be used in the doing of the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and uh, you shall give them to the Levites to give uh, to every man according to their service. And so God honors kind of the reason for which uh, the gift was given. And so Moses, obedient here, took the carts and the oxen, gave them to the Levites, two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. Remember the family of Gershon, they had the responsibility of carrying the kind of coverings, the skins and the fabric coverings, four layers of coverings over the tabernacle and then also kind of the linen fence that was around the courtyard. Well, this is bulky, this is heavy stuff, bulky, kind of uh, cumbersome stuff and they were given here the uh, two carts and the four oxen for the transportation of it. Now, four carts and eight oxen. Wait a second. I got two carts and four oxen, and they're over there getting four carts and eight oxen. But four carts and eight oxen he shall give to the sons of Merai according to their service, under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. Now, the sons of Merai, you remember, their whole responsibility was to transport all of the support structure of the tabernacle, all those boards and all of that wood and a lot of it gold-plated and everything, and they got twice as many carts and oxen because they, they needed it twice as, as much uh, uh, to, uh, you know, here... Uh, you know, the responsibility that they had, God said, all right, I take that into consideration. I'm going to give you what you need. You know, I mean, you, we, sometimes we think God is in, in tune with, you know, the nuances of the little things that are happening, uh, you know, around us in our ministries. He's got his finger on the pulse of everything. But to the sons of Kohath, he didn't give uh, anything to, to them. No oxen, no carts, because theirs was the service of the holy things and all of the furnishings and all which they had to carry on their shoulders again because all of those things represented Christ and the things of Christ are to be carried into the world through human instruments and we are uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit and a picture of that under the new covenant. Now the leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed and so the leaders offered their offering before the altar for the Lord said to Moses they shall offer their offering one leader each day for the dedication of the altar. And so now here's a second offering. They had uh, offered up what, uh, the, the carts and the oxen and then now each of the tribes and the leader of the tribe said we want to offer God something even more on, on top uh, of that. And so in addition to that this is a, an extra offering. And then what God uh, says concerning it, very very uh, beautiful here, verse 11, the Lord said they shall offer their offering, I'll receive it from them but I don't want them to all come all 12 of them, leaders of the 12 tribes come 
come and to give it to me all on one day. He said, here's how I want to receive it. Uh, uh, one leader each day for the dedication of the altar. I want one leader of one tribe to come, bring the gift to me. Then the next day, the leader of the next tribe and the next tribe and the next tribe. He wanted to spread it out. He wanted to savor it. He wanted to enjoy it. So it didn't all just happen in a flash. And, and so that each tribe could be engaged. Okay, tomorrow our leader is taking our gift to God and all, and God would then be able just to receive it and, 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 and enjoy it the way that a Heavenly Father uh, enjoys it. I mean, you get it. When you receive, uh, you know, as an as a earthly father, when we re- and it's interesting, the gifts that they're going to bring to God the, the, each, on each of the days, the different leaders are going to bring the same identical gift every single day. Every single day they're going to bring. And as, as they bring them, as God says, I want on this day this person to come, and this day the next, this tribe, and this tribe, and this tribe, and this tribe. And it's just the way that he laid them out around the tabernacle. But it doesn't matter to God that they were bringing him. They didn't have to say, oh man, they gave him this much and now we need to top that so that you know, we'll be the favorite tribe or anything like that. I think God doesn't operate that way. He's a dad. You take a dad, let's say he's got 12 kids. <laughs> if they all buy him the same pair of slippers, he's going to enjoy all 12 pair. It's, it, it isn't the slippers. He doesn't need anything. No, no physical dad needs 12 pairs of slippers. God doesn't need anything from us. But it's the heart and, and that's expressed, the heart of a child toward the Father. And that's why the Lord says, let's just spread this thing out and let's enjoy it. You enjoy it and then I'll enjoy it. He wants, he wants the, the whole giving side of things and, and related to him to be something that everybody in, enjoys. And so he, he has the whole thing uh, uh, spread out in uh, in this way, and and so really very uh, very very beautiful. So um, uh, each of the days they would come. Let me see. I'm trying to think of something because um, uh, oh, it reminds me in that in that vein, New Testament carry over on it. Um, when he spreads this out over the twelve days, obviously this meant a lot to him, and and the giving of his people means a lot to him. And uh, I, I think about, you go into the New Testament, especially when any gift that any of us give to the Lord, it means a lot to him. I think that's good just to settle in our spirits. I'm not priming you for an offering, just in our spirits. He notices. He notices the amount. He notices it, it, it blesses him. And when giving comes from sacrifice, he notices it too. And he recognizes that giving represents sacrifice in the body of Christ. And that, remember when Jesus talked about that woman who put in the two mites and it was out of her very livelihood. It, was, it took bread off the table that day for her to give that to God. And Jesus took note of that, and that's the way that God does it. So he notices, what, what, he notices the heart and everything that's behind the, the giving, and this really blesses him. And, the, and so the one who offered his offering on the first day was Nashon the son of Aminadab from the tribe of Judah. So number one here. And his offering was one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 uh, shekels, so about four pounds. 
And then he also, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, two pounds, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels, so about six ounces of gold, full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, and then one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Aminadab. And then everything shut down until day two. Then on the second day, and you imagine the tribe of Judah, thank you, what a blessing. We got to bless God all day. And they didn't bring in, you know, Nathaniel at 10 o'clock and then the next one at 11 o'clock. It was, it was their day just to, uh, you know, in, in blessing God. Second day, Nathaniel, uh, uh, the son of Zurar, uh, leader of Issachar, he presented an offering. And then it lists exactly the same uh, offering that was that was listed there, and you look, and it goes all the way through on day 24, a third day. Eliab of the tribe of Zebulun he presented the same thing. On the fourth day, uh, Eliezer uh, of the tribe of Judah he made his offering. And and in the reading of the whole thing, there's just this beautiful uh, kind of. Uh, cadence to it and, and a reminder to the nation of Israel that all of their giving meant a, a great deal to God. None, no, nothing any of us gives to God. God doesn't lose track of it. He doesn't... Um, uh, he takes note of all of it that's given to him, whether material or time or, or you know, obedience, all of these different kinds of, of things. And then uh, it, it says there on um, the verse 36, the fifth day uh, Shlemuel uh, of, of the children of Simeon, he offered the same offering on behalf of the tribe. On the sixth day, Elisaph of the tribe of Gad, he offered the same offering to God. Verse 48, seventh day, Elishama of the tribe of uh, Benjamin, he offered on behalf of that tribe. Verse 54, the eighth day, Gamaliel uh, of the uh, children of Manasseh, he offered on their behalf. On the ninth day, uh, Abidon uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, he presented the same offering. Verse 66, on the tenth day, Hazir uh, of the tribe of Dan offered the same offering. Eleventh day, verse 72, uh, Pagiel the, uh, of the tribe of Asher made the same offering. On the twelfth day, Ahira of the tribe of Naphtali, he presented the same offering offering to to the Lord and the Lord he he just didn't say well you know the 12 tribes came and this is is what I got uh, on things no it's just he took note it was the same gift that was given he just took note of it day after day after day after day as they, as they uh, give it to uh, to him nothing that we give to God goes unnoticed by God nothing goes unnoticed Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now if our, if our, our antennas, our spiritual antennas aren't you know, up toward the Lord and toward the Spirit tonight, that's just, a, that's just a, a verse in the Bible. But when you give your life away and you're serving the Lord and a lot, most of what we do for the Lord is unnoticed by just about everybody but the Lord. And all the Lord comes in and says... I see it. 
I see all of it. I see it right down to the, to the lamb. I see it right down to the gold. I see it right down to the grain. I see all of it, and it blesses me. And one day I'll reward you uh, for it. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage uh, on, on the heart of God uh, toward our giving. Now, here's the uh, kind of uh, the total of all of the gifts in verse 84. This is the dedication uh, of, uh, this was the dedication offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. Twelve silver platters in all, twelve silver bowls, twelve gold pans. Each silver platter weighed 130 shekels, and each bowl 70 shekels. All the silver of the vessels weighed 2,400 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The twelve gold pans full of incense weighed ten shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All of the gold of the pans weighed 120 shekels. Now, you think he's going to lose your reward? <laughs> it's right down one... All of the oxen for the burnt offering were 12 young bulls, the rams uh, 12, and the male lambs in their first year 12, with the grain offering and the kids of the goats as a sin offering 12, and all the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings were 24 bulls, the rams 60, the male goats 60, and the lambs in their first year 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. And now, when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, so he goes uh, right into the Holy of Holies. This is Moses, not Aaron. Aaron. Aaron's the high priest. Moses had this relationship with God that he's able to go into the Holy of Holies, uh, kind of appears like whenever he wants to, or the Lord is, calls him in on a regular basis. Aaron could only go in one day out of the whole year. Just one day, and that after a sacrifice had been offered for him. Moses, God calls him in and he's meeting with God regularly over the Ark of the Covenant and this beautiful, intimate relationship with God in, in that holy of holies. He's not stricken dead. God is pleased, and I think God meets with Moses here over the Ark of the Covenant in, in this verse as kind of an expression of his pleasure with what's just happened in the giving of his people. But he meets with him there, and he doesn't get smitten and because Moses has a relationship with God that nobody else among all of the children of Israel uh, have at this point in time. And, and so he he heard there uh, the voice of one, the Lord, speaking to him from above the mercy seat. So we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies that was uh, on the Ark of the Testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. So Moses could go into the Holy of Holies and he could speak to God and meet with God and God would speak to him and communicate to him uh, for the nation. Now, the reason that it's important to recognize that is when we get into chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, they, um, they begrudge Moses this intimate of a relationship with God. They don't like it. And so they begin to complain about it and they raise up a, a rebellion against Moses because uh, who is he and don't we all you know, walk with God and these kinds of things. And they start to, to, start to kind of birth this rebellion against because they're jealous of, of the relationship and, and, and calling that Moses has uh, with the Lord. And so it kind of sets the stage a little bit for understanding chapter 12. Well, let's ask the worship team to come up.
and uh, let's spend a couple of minutes in worship uh, before we leave. And we read through all of this, and the lessons are so great in, in all of it. But uh, I, I, and I love reading the Old Testament, and it, and it does speak to us today as Christians. The volume of the book testifies of Jesus. But one of the things that it does is I, you read through all of this. As, I, I, as a Christian, uh, I just stop and I say, Lord, thank you for Jesus. <laughs> is so simple and it's not complicated I just need to walk close to him keep growing in my relationship with him and then all of these other things take place and so let's worship the Lord tonight as we close <laughs>